Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Online. If you're new, welcome. If not, welcome back. Today we are looking at the fourth letter from Jesus to the church uh, at Thyatira, uh, or Thyatira, depending on how you want to say that, and we're going to see how this church is called to represent Christ. We're going to do that by seeing how this church is holding on to who Jesus is and how Jesus lived. So let's jump in and read the letter first uh, in Revelation chapter 2, and then we're going to talk about this background uh, of this city where this church was located. So we're in Revelation 2, starting in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God. Now this, by the way, is the only place we see the phrase Son of God in all of the seven letters to the seven churches. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith and service uh, and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on, except to hold on to what you have you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now. That is a lot to digest, and some of it uh, can be really confusing. So maybe it'll help if we investigate what this city of Thyatira was like so that we have the context, and that'll help us decipher what Jesus is talking about in this particular letter. Uh, first, Thyatira was one of the smaller cities in this region of Asia Minor that we've been looking at in this series. Maybe, maybe 30,000 people lived there tops, and it was known for its industry. Thyatira was a hard-working city full of labor guilds. In fact, a list of the registered guilds in Thyatira was found some time ago, and it's one of the longest lists of its kind ever, ever uncovered. The guilds in the city included leather workers, wool workers, weavers, bakers, tailors, dyers, candle makers, cobblers, potters, bronze smiths, blacksmiths. There were other kinds of merchants, dyers of purple cloth and stone cutters. So for a city of that size, the city of Thyatira, the list is just really long, and the jobs are for people who are going to work hard. So Thyatira is like the Detroit of that area, but smaller. So there were a ton of different trades and trade guilds in Thyatira, and when I, what I, when I say guild, I want you to think about modern-day union, uh, you know, like the groups that represent employees so that employees get a fair shake from whatever company, like what we're always hearing about. Uh, in our contemporary news lately about Amazon and Starbucks, which are both ironically enough headquartered here in Seattle. But the difference between these guilds and our unions today is that each one of these guilds also had a god or goddess associated with them that they worshipped. So, for example, if you were a bronze smith, 
you worshipped a certain goddess. And there were feasts and festivals that you would observe and take part in that were dedicated to that god. And Thyatira uh, was known for uh, bronze making. If you were a shoemaker, then who would you worship? What god would it be or goddess? Nike. So each guild had its own god or goddess. And if you were a tradesperson who made a particular product, when you went to your guild, it was like you had your built-in support of groupies. This was your tribe. These were your people. So imagine if you're a Christian and you say you, let's say you belong to a guild that deals in fabric or wool or, wool or something before, before you came to have a living faith in Jesus. But then you give your heart and soul to following Jesus and you realize you still want to belong to your guild, but you don't want to participate in the offerings and holidays and feast days that celebrate the particular God that's associated with your trade guild. And this is how the trouble begins. In fact, Lydia, who Paul meets in Philippi, probably would have had to make decisions very much like this because she was from Thyatira. So we read in Acts 16, starting verse 13, these are Paul's words. He says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Well, the question for a Christian at that time then becomes, because I want to make a living and provide for my family, do I join a guild where I have, I'm kind of expected to participate in idolatry and adult and adultery based in eating food sacrificed to these false gods and engaging in sexual immorality that supposedly pleases these false gods? That's one choice. And the other choice is, I don't join a guild and I trust that God's going to provide for me. Will I even be allowed to work my trade and make a living if I choose Jesus? And this goes back to what we've laid the groundwork for in previous messages, that the context really matters. And remember also that Jesus is writing this letter through John to a particular people in a particular place in a particular time in history who are dealing with a particular situation. It is unique. And this is why I said a few weeks ago that this letter was not written to us, but it is written for us. And it's all about the hardship that they face. In Thyatira, the god that was worshipped there uh, most prominently was Apollo, son of Zeus, also sometimes called Apollo Terimnaeus. Um, we talked about the god Asclepius last week, who was associated with the hospital and temple in Pergamum. Well, Asclepius is the son of Apollo. So Apollo Terimnaeus, the son of the big main god of the Greeks, Zeus, is worshipped here. Maybe it's not a coincidence then that Jesus uses that title, the son of God, right here for these people in this city. It's like he's saying, look, there can be only one. There's only one real son of God. And it's Jesus. Jesus is not being subtle here. Like we talked about last week, he's delivering an apocalypse. And the first word in the book of Revelation is the Greek word apocalypse. But all that word means is, is to reveal. And what we see truly revealed in this letter is the person of Jesus. And the question we should be asking is not about end times or anything like that at all. The question when we read this letter to Thyatira is, Jesus, how are you going to reveal yourself to me through this letter? And the first thing we see is that Jesus says to them, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. And that's kind of a big standing ovation kind of compliment that Jesus pays them. 
the word love in the Greek there is the word agape, which means unconditional. He's like, I know you love each other and others unconditionally. And I see these good things you're doing. But remember what we said at the outset of this series, that Jesus is going to do two things. First, he's going to encourage, but then he's also going to correct these churches. So he tells them how proud he is of them for what he knows about them in chapter 2, verse 19. But then he proceeds to correct them, and he calls he calls them out for allowing this prophetess that he names Jezebel, who's misleading them into committing idolatry and adultery. But these are just the outward faces of something that's deeper within. It's really easy for us to focus on the outward issue and miss what's really going on inside the hearts of these people, which is really what Jesus is concerned about. And what I mean by this is that we often just want to focus on the sin that we see someone doing on the outside, on the surface. And then we can say, look, see, that's sin. But Jesus is saying, look, her teaching is misleading them into sin. And so who is this Jezebel that Jesus mentioned? Well, first off, this is another case of the intertwining of the ancient and the modern in terms of context. We talked about this last time by saying that in these letters, Jesus loves to combine Old Testament imagery and history on one side with the modern day context of these people on the other side to draw out some really powerful implications. So the story in the Old Testament about Jezebel begins in 1 Kings 16. She's the daughter of the king of Sidon, who is not Hebrew. And then she marries Ahab, who's the Israelite king. And what she does is she first leads Ahab astray, and then she leads the entire nation of Israel astray. And the text in 1 Kings says that King Ahab was worse than any of the kings who came before him. So there's that. And then Queen, Jeze Queen Jezebel is just a really, she's a piece of work herself. She, from introducing idolatry to the people of Israel, to accusing and executing an innocent man, to raising Asherah poles and worshiping the false god of Baal. What she does is she ultimately hunts down all the prophets of Yahweh, the one true God, and she kills them. And then there's this big Super Bowl showdown moment between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And God rains fire on Elijah's sacrifice, which is just covered in water, and it just burns to ash in front of their eyes, like immediately. And afterward, Elijah orders the people to kill the prophets of Baal because... They are proved false, and they do it. And because Elijah orders their execution, Jezebel then tries to kill Elijah. But even though Elijah just stood up to hundreds of men, literally hundreds of men, Jezebel is so ruthless and evil that he runs for it. He runs for the hills, even after all the fire from the sky stuff. This lady just strikes fear into the heart of everyone. So when the Christians in Thyatira read the name Jezebel, they knew exactly who Jesus was referring to. The woman who was in their church in Thyatira was probably not actually named Jezebel, but everyone in the church knows who Jesus is talking about, and they're making the association now, and it's not a good one. They're like, we're allowing someone who opposes God to teach and mislead us. And so while we sit here for a moment thinking about that, it's also important to note what Jesus is not saying. He's not He's not mad or upset that a woman is teaching in Thyatira. We can read about many women prophets in the Old Testament that were good, many church leaders in the New Testament, including Junia in Romans 16, who's named by Paul as an apostle with a capital A. Jesus is not opposed to a woman teaching. What he is mad about is the content of this woman's teaching. He's upset about what she is teaching. And we don't have all the details, but it says she's teaching the so-called deep secrets of Satan in verse 24. Ultimately, what we see is that some of the believers in this church are misrepresenting who Jesus was by not holding on faithfully to the truth and right teachings of Jesus. 
And this really goes back all the way to the identity given to God's people by God himself, all the way back to the Ten Commandments. The third of the Ten Commandments is the one we know commonly as, you shall not use the name of the Lord in vain, or don't say the Lord's name in vain. And we think we know what that means, but the full text from Exodus 20 says this, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. But for some reason, we have learned that this has to do with saying the name of God and then attaching some kind of swear word on the end uh, to his name. In other words, it has to do with what comes out of our mouths. But that misses uh, the point mostly, not entirely, but mostly. The Hebrew word use is really the word to bear or to carry. And the word misuse would mean then to inappropriately carry. So we could say this commandment in a different way. You could say it like this. You shall not inappropriately carry the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who inappropriately carries his name. So maybe a good example of this would be my son and daughter. My kids bear my last name. And because they have my last name, it lets people know that they belong to my family. So this commandment is saying, do not carry, do not bear, do not wear the name of God in an inappropriate, unholy manner. For if you do, God will not find anyone guiltless because you're making God look bad. The commandment says you are guilty of sin if you bear the name of God in an unholy manner. And that's what the church of Thyatira was doing. By allowing a false prophet to come in and give false teachings, they were misrepresenting Christ. And that is a really big deal. To bear the name of God is to let people know who we belong to, who we worship. To belong to Christ is to belong to his church, his family, his guild. To belong to the body of Christ, what Paul calls the bride of Christ. To belong to the church is to bear the name of Jesus. And to bear the name of Jesus is to live as Jesus lived to follow his way. And if you misrepresent Jesus's teachings, he's going to have something to say about that. What we learn in scripture from the first stories in the Bible onward is that God is serious about who he is and about us demonstrating faithfulness to him. So he says, you shall have no other gods before me. But the church in Thyatira was misrepresenting his name. We see this play out in the gospels as well. Jesus is really hard so hard on the Pharisees and teachers of the law and the Gospels because they were misrepresenting who God was. Pastor Rich Viota says this, the sad irony of our day is we can be deeply committed to being a Christian, but not be deeply formed in Christ. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite Christian authors, said it this way, another way. He said, the idea of having faith in Jesus has come to be totally isolated from being his apprentice and learning how to do what he said. Let me say that again. The idea of having faith in Jesus has come to be totally isolated from being his apprentice and learning how to do what he said. In other words, we can do all the churchy things and be committed to God, but not formed by Christ. And obviously, this is an age-old problem. John is giving Jesus' message about this very topic, to the church in Thyatira 2,000 years ago. Paul complained about it too when he wrote to the Galatians. We can see in Galatians 4.19, he says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul saying to these churches in Galatia, which is another area in Asia Minor that's really near to Thyatira, he's saying, you guys aren't yet formed in Christ. No wonder you're being led astray. 
In other words, it's different people, slightly different times, slightly different place, and, and slightly different context, but it's the same old problem. The church in Thyatira was committed to being Christian. In other words, they were committed to having the name Christian, but they had not been deeply formed. And the question is, how does that work out in our context? Well, for many of us, we know how to come to church or to the church building. You park, you walk in, you say hi to a few people for what amounts to just a few minutes of your morning. And it's really just an infinitely small fraction of the time in your week. It's even less in terms of a month. Basically, no time at all when you look at it from the standpoint you know, of a, year, a year's time. And after you say hi to a few people and engage in that small talk, you come into the worship center or the sanctuary and you sing songs of praise. And then you sit down, you listen to a sermon like this. You might take a few notes and then you're out of here. You leave. And that's how a lot of people do church. That's what the actions of faith amount to. Nothing more, sometimes less. And a lot of us are committed to doing churchy things as St. Jack Black says in Nacho Libre, I have a lot of religious duties. Thyatira was struggling with this as well. They were allowing false teachings to lead them astray. So what might be a good thing for us to come to grips with is this. Satan is not going to stop trying to infiltrate the church and try to discount and dismiss the impact we have by attempting to diminish our identity in Christ. Jesus himself said we would be persecuted. But in the same way Jesus was persecuted, we will be too. We will also be tempted like Jesus was when he was in the desert, where Satan tried to trick him. We can read that in Luke 4. Jesus is presented scriptures by Satan himself as the devil twists those scriptures and gives false teaching to Jesus, which Jesus rejects. So in this letter, there's this Jezebel who's giving false teaching to this church in Thyatira, and she's attempting to convince them that there's some way to bypass the hardships that come from following Jesus. She's saying, you can have one foot on the wide path to destruction and one foot on the narrow path that leads to life and not be torn apart. You can have a foot in both worlds. You can sit on the fence. You can be a Christian in name, but you can circumvent and avoid, elude or dodge or sidestep, whatever you want to call it true faithfulness to Jesus. And you can basically ignore being true to Jesus because you're afraid of the consequences that may come with that, like not being accepted in the group that used to accept you, or you could lose your job, or you could have your business taken away. But if all you have to do is say you're a Christian, and then you just need to do an end run around the character requirements of Christ-likeness that proves you are who you say you are, how's that going to hold up in the end? So Jesus is saying to them here, there is no end run around hardship. There's no evading it. There's no shortcut. And the question for them again is, do I compromise my faith and capitulate to the status quo, give in to the peer pressure of the day to participate in these festivals associated with each guild, or do I trust God alone and stand strong in my faith? Is God going to provide what I need? The same question Jesus was asking when he was being tempted in the desert. Same question the prophet Elijah was asking, is God going to help me? God, when are you going to provide? And when you do, will it be enough? You see, we don't like struggle. It makes us uncomfortable. And when we're in that space, we begin to look for answers and solutions on our own from other sources that are not God. When we face hardships, we, we start looking for answers in other places. And it's the same situation for, for all of humanity from the beginning of time. 
you will always hear bad, false teachings today in the same form it was delivered to Adam and Eve in the garden by the serpent in Genesis. Did God really say, did God really say this or that? Do you really say you have to be like Jesus? Did God really say you have to persevere through this hardship and it'll build your faith? Understand this about yourself. You don't like to be uncomfortable. You don't like hardship. Neither do I. None of us do. Remember that we said the main encouraging thought from Jesus through these letters is that they are an encouragement for followers of Jesus to have hope and be holy in the midst of hardship. But we want shortcuts through hardship. We want to flout obedience. We want to sidestep actionable practices of faith, like serving or making time for prayer and Bible study or apprenticing ourselves to another believer who has purposefully and intentionally become more and more like Jesus in their own life. We love worship in the form of singing and praise, but we want to bypass worship in the form of giving generously back to God with our finances, as if he can't see who we are, what we're doing. Like we can outflank a being who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. We don't want to endure hardship. Many Christians I've talked to seem a little bit confused when they go through something hard. And I found the reason for this is because they believe Jesus wouldn't even allow them to go through hardships. But Jesus himself, he squared his shoulders and went through the unthinkable. Did he want to die? No. We can read his prayer in Luke 22, 42. He asks God himself, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But as the story continues, we see that God didn't take that cup of suffering away from Jesus. And he was betrayed and he was crucified. Just unimaginable hardship. So when we look at ourselves in the mirror and we are honest that we don't want to go through hardship, it's a bit like saying, look, I, hey, God, I want resurrection on Sunday, but without carrying my cross on Friday. This false teacher in Thyatira is saying, sure, you can have the hope of Jesus, but you also need the help of the guilt as well. And Jesus is responding to that and saying, I want all of your faithfulness. No one or no thing else can have it. I want all your heart. And they were playing a short game when they were supposed to be playing the long game. To honor God in hardship is to carry the name of Christ. And to live as Christ lived is to endure hardship without compromising our faith. And Jesus is serious about this. He says that he's going to deal with Jezebel and her children. And it seems pretty harsh the way he spells it out. But the harshness of his statements toward her are kind of bookended with mercy and grace. Because he says, look, I gave her time to repent. And he also says, I'll deal with her followers unless they repent. In other words, there's always hope in Jesus. And he ends this letter to those who want to bear the name of Jesus. And that includes us today. He says, hold on to what you have until I come. And all they have is Jesus. And Jesus is all we have as well. And that's my prayer and encouragement as we wrap this up today. Hold on to the hope of Jesus. Hold on to the hope of the resurrection. Hope that God will provide. That even uh, though hardships are hell, Jesus is life, and he provides a way to eternal life. One day, you will be with Jesus in his kingdom. And because of that promise, we can endure. Likewise, church is a family. It's a tribe of people who can come together and have hope when we share what our hardships and struggles are. It's a place where we can find safe people to open up with and be vulnerable and share our struggles. We can carry each other's burdens. So I want to encourage you, don't go through your struggles alone. Let's move past doing church 
just to do church and, and work on being the church that Jesus wants us to be more and more because we know how to do church. Let's work on being the church. And that's my prayer for you and for us as a church today. Jesus says to this church at Thyatira and to us as well, as kind of a case study of sorts, you're doing some great things. You're good at doing church, but you need to work on being the church and giving me your whole heart in faithful trust and obedience, even in the midst of hardship. The church is a place to find Christ and have hope and live with holiness in the midst of hardship. Till next time, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.